I'm going to ask something I've never really asked, but typically pastors will preach a sermon and then say, hey, if that touched you, maybe stand and I'll pray for you or come forward and rededicate your life or raise your hand if you want me to pray for you because this whole thing like tied to your life or something like that. I'm actually just going to front load that. If, if you're just finding yourself really needing to hear from God this morning, either because life is so mundane it's killing you or because it's so dramatic that you're just desperate to know kind of what God would speak into that, whatever that is, it doesn't it doesn't have to be strange. It's just you're coming in with a hunger or a desire to hear from God. I'm going to ask you just to stand, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into the book of Habakkuk. So feel free just to stand. I want to know who I'm talking to this morning is basically what it's coming down to. And then we, the church, we, the people of God, gather in this place, trusting that God does meet us weekly, that the Holy Spirit does come and superintend our gatherings and speak words to us that we need to hear, we are going to believe that God can meet us this morning and that what he would say to us can actually change our day, our week, our month, this year or our life, and we're going to take that on faith. Father, we are wired to run faster than you. We want things now, we feel the urgency, our fears get the best of us. It's hard for us to wait on you. It's hard for us to even look to you sometimes to find strength in the midst of our despair. Yet as as this book will show us, you are in your holy temple. The Lord is in his holy temple and that all the earth should remain silent before you. And so we want to look first to you. We want to see you high and exalted. We want to realize and recognize that you are glorious and that your glory will cover the earth, that the whole world will will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord, and that we can look with hope to that. And in the meantime, we can look to you for strength, So, Father, just meet us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to Habakkuk. I'm hoping that uh, many of you are able to keep up with the reading. We, We kind of put those books out. If you still want one, we still have them at the book table. But it's it's just the prophets uh kind of boiled together in story form, uh with the verse and the chapter markers taken out, just so that you can read it the way it was written. Uh, And I hope you're able to follow along with us as we're journeying through this. One of the the great disadvantages of the the communications era is that we're spending as Christians, on average, a lot less time studying or reading uh, Scripture. We're surrounded with so much information, so much noise, that that we're losing, as as a people group, we're losing the discipline or the habit of sitting and reading and and trying to hear the voice of the Lord uh, as we we go through the scriptures. And so I I just pray, I hope, that that many of you are able to avail yourself of that. You don't have to buy that Bible to do it. You can use your own Bible at home. But I do think whether you've read Habakkuk coming into this sermon or whether you go and read it this week, I think you'll find it incredibly encouraging. So Habakkuk 1, it's 
It's really interesting. We just jump in with, with one part one of a five-part book. There's five parts to this book. It's uh, Habakkuk's initial complaint, and it's really short, so we'll read it. The initial complaint, part one, is this. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? That's that mysterious part again. God is further than we'd have him be. Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So just picture Habakkuk living in a culture that has become lawless. Justice is paralyzed. Like it it doesn't happen Like, there's nothing that fixes any situation. There's nothing that protects. There's no structures. It's like a playground kind of gone wild. Um, It's that book we all read, like, in high school, Lord of the Flies, right? When it just goes crazy. But Habakkuk's writing from a real experience, not playground or a novel or fiction. He's writing as one who's in a place where it's just crazy. You think of a place where there's a lot of violence, uh, Juarez across the Mexican border. Like imagine living somewhere where there is absolutely no justice. And Habakkuk is saying, God, don't you see this? Can't you see what's happening here? I'm talking to you about this. I've been praying before now, but this is my complaint I I continually bring to you. And it's as if you don't care because you're not saying anything. So this is the initial complaint. Habakkuk in the middle of of injustice and violence. And then God gives his answer. And it's shocking because it's not what you'd expect. Uh, God's answer is this. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. You know, there's something fascinating about our prayer life with God. Oftentimes... If God's going to speak to us when we're, we're approaching him in prayer, it's, it's a word that we wouldn't believe even if we were told. Like I, I don't think we realize sometimes when we're praying that we're playing with fire, that, that the God of the universe, if he speaks to us, it's, it's not going to be within the conversation we've framed for him. Like, God, I've brought you this conversation. Now give me an answer that makes sense within the parameters of the conversation I've begun with you. When God chooses to speak a word to us in prayer, he usually dismisses completely the, the, the conversation we framed for him, and he's saying, now this is going to shock you. Are, are you ready for this one? You know, I'm about to tell you something that you probably wouldn't even believe if you heard it as clearly as I'm going to speak it to you. And that's what God does to Habakkuk here. He says, I'm about to do something in your days, meaning in your generation while you're alive, I'm about to do something that you wouldn't believe even if I I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own, and I've I've raised them up to come and devour you, Uh, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, this, this kind of kingdom that was supposed to be righteous, but has fallen into this kind of perverted, unjust, lawless, idolatrous kind of people. 
And finally, once and for all, God is going to have the most wicked or vile of all nations, the Babylonian Empire, sweep in and decimate them and cart them off into slavery. So you've got violence, Juarez, and you've got Habakkuk saying, God, right here in Judah, aren't you going to deal with this? And God's answer is, I'm sending ISIS to Juarez, and they're going to decimate the Mexican gangs, uh, and they're going to they're going to completely just obliterate that city and cart off a lot of those people and they're going to take them slave. And if you were down there and you were praying about this injustice, how would that sound to you? Does it sound like a fix? Does it sound like what you want to hear? Does it sound like you're going to even live or that you're cousins or aunts or uncles or nephews or nieces might survive this. Like, I don't even know if they're going to survive this level of violence. And you're talking about sweeping in with this wave, this tidal wave of greater destruction, greater violence, and that's ultimately going to decimate these people and take them off. And this is what God is saying. This is what I'm going to do. You're hardly going to believe it. And he goes on and talks about how bad these people are. Verse 11 Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. So God makes a point of saying that these godless people are going to be his instrument of judging these uh, unjust or violent people. So these unjust or violent people Habakkuk kind of began with are going to be judged by the godless people. Now, if you're Habakkuk, what's your, your next complaint? So we've got part one, the initial complaint. Part two is God's response. You're not going to believe this. I'm going to use the godless people to bring judgment on the unjust people. Now part three is the rejoinder by Habakkuk. What would you say if you were Habakkuk? What would you say? By the way, the second complaint is longer than the first complaint. Okay? Um, And the second complaint, let's just kind of roll through it real quick, is simply this. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, God, Father, you've appointed these people to execute judgment. You have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why 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 are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. Now the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations, Without mercy. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So, this nation scoops other nations up in a net and he plunders them to make himself rich. And then he worships this process. I'm getting rich by exploiting or, or conquering other people. And that, that process of conquering other people is to my glory, says Babylon, right? 
and I become stronger and wealthier and, and more prosperous. I get a bigger and bigger name in the annals of history. And so I go with my net and I conquer more people and I plunder them. And so Habakkuk is saying, this is Babylon that's doing this. And they glory in their own strength. And they're this idolatrous people. And you're going to use them to come and, and swallow up those who are more righteous than they are. Meaning the wicked people of Judah are actually better than the even more wicked people of Babylon. I don't understand this, God. Why are you doing this? Now I'm going to go to the rampart and I'm going to stand. The rampart is basically the watchtower. If you just think of driving around in the hills outside of Bend or Central Oregon, you see those fire towers? You know what I'm talking about? Those watchtowers on the tops of hills and they're looking for smoke so that they can spot fire before it gets too out of hand and then they can call it in. But you know those little kind of cabin looking things. Nodding helps me not continue to explain something obvious, right? Thank you. You know, you go, what introvert is living there? You know what I'm saying? In an introvert's dream. The prophets weren't just people that were these, these strong kind of preachers. The whole idea of the prophets were that they were the first to see. They were, they were the watchmen for God, so to speak. They were the first to see what God was doing, what God wanted people to know was going to happen. And then they were the ones that go back and relay that message for God. So there's this, this aspect where you're looking and you're watching. And so Habakkuk is saying, I don't understand like I was talking about the violence here and you're fixing this violence with something even more violent, like beyond my comprehension. I don't get this, God. You're right. If you told me this plainly, I still wouldn't understand. But so now I'm going to go position myself to watch and see what you're going to say to me or what you're going to do in answer to this complaint because obviously I've brought a just or righteous complaint to you. God, you can't allow the Babylonians to like continue to prosper. It doesn't make sense. So I'm going to watch for your answer so that I'll, I'll know how to position myself or what to say. So that's part three. Part four is God's answer to the second complaint. And this is fascinating. This is when we begin to realize God's plans are, are bigger than kind of our plans. His narrative arc ha has a longer scope than what we would have for it. And that God sees things longer in time. So God answers and he says, listen, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the, rev uh, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So God is saying, listen, what I'm about to say to you now, this revelation, write it down on tablets, and that's an allusion to the Ten Commandments. Basically, put it in stone. Because just like my law is fixed and, and, and never is going to pass out, like so too this revelation is fixed. It's coming. It will happen. It, it awaits an appointed time. And you wait for it. I've got my plan. I know how I'm going to save my people. I know how I'm going to redeem and reconcile and fix what's broken in the world. I know how I'm going to bring good news. And so you write this down on tablets of stone. And then let the people know about it. 
It's fascinating. When Jesus came to preach good news to the poor, I think it was a part of this, like, I am coming. I am the revelation. I'm here for those of you that have been waiting in despair so that you can see and know that God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. That God is with you even in your trials. Like there's so much about this that points to what God did in Jesus Christ and what God will continue to do um, as we look to the end days. But so here's where we get the message. Wait for it. It will certainly come. Verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. So that's the Babylonians, this nation, this instrument of, of kind of my judgment. He is puffed up. His desires are not upright. And then we get sandwiched in there, this fascinating little phrase, but the righteous will live by his faith. The word righteous here is set against the Babylonian uh, empire. If you want to know the opposite of righteous, you think of the Babylonians. The opposite of the Babylonians is righteous, and, and that means like not puffed up in your own glory, your own strength, not extorting other people, not swallowing people up in violence. The word righteous is the same as the word just. Justice and righteousness are the same word here. If we were in our King James Bible or our New King James Bible right here, it would say the just will live by his faith. Um, It's the same concept. This unjust nation that is puffed up is different than the just. And the just aren't doing it by their own strength to, to, to kind of maximize their own gain. The just, they walk by faith, meaning obedience and trust. They do things the way, the way God would have us do them. And it's fascinating that this little verse that becomes one of the hallmark verses of all of Scripture, it shows up three different times in the New Testament. Galatians, Romans, etc. Three different times in the New Testament. This verse is for the Bible or for the people of God, kind of the hallmark verse, this idea that the just or the righteous will, will live by their faith, meaning they don't live by sight. They don't kind of angle or steer by what's logical or what makes sense. Rather, they walk a road, a narrow road, a difficult road, a windy road that doesn't make any sense sometimes, but they do it because they know it's the right road. They do it out of obedience and trust that somehow if they walk this road, it's the right way to do it and God will um, be faithful to them. That in their faith, God will prove himself faithful. That if we trust God, God will prove himself trustworthy. That's the road we're going to walk. And this little verse that becomes this hallmark verse is right set in the middle of um, the Babylonian empire being this kind of wicked and puffed up empire. How many times have you heard the, the, the righteous will live by faith. How many times have you heard it in the context of the Babylonian Empire? You just did, by the way. So it's just, just to point that out. You guys, you guys are slow this morning. Our faith is defined oftentimes best against our worst circumstances. Our faith is defined oftentimes best when set against our worst circumstances. When you think the righteous or the just will live by faith, when you hear the righteous will live by faith, if you want to understand it the way it was intended to be read, you have to set it against faith. 
the darkest, the most ominous, foreboding thing that you might struggle with in your life. The broken relationship, the enemy that just won't stop, the finances that never quit, the health issues that go on and on and on and on and continue to get worse or worse or worse. You, you have to put that there and then, and then position this, this other beautiful little verse against it and say, but against how I would strive in this scenario and try and fix my own life and lean on my own strength, against these circumstances, I, I'm going to walk by faith. That's the posture of someone that believes in God. It's the posture of a person that's righteous or just. So this is God saying this, by the way. So he goes on and talks about how bad the Babylonians are. And they're bad, and they're bad. Verse 9, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on, on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You've plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. In other words, this beautiful phrase, you know, if uh, the, the one who builds um, the psalm, uh, if you build your house, <laughs> I got to go back to memorizing my Bible verses. The, the one who builds his house, now, you know what I'm talking about? No, not, not, not sand and stone. Where's Pete? No, the one who builds it and doesn't labor in vain, the one who labors, and, what, are you, what am I talking about? No, no, get off the stones. It's nothing to do with stones. Unless the laborer builds his house, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in vain. Thank you. Thank you. There, there is a stone verse. Um, there's a rock, there's a metaphor, but unless the, the Lord builds the house, the laborer labors in vain. Pete was of no help, let the record show. He just sat there and, and smiled at me. Um, uh, I'm going to go over here. Um, but so, so, I mean, pick up the metaphor here, right? The stones of the wall will cry out. Um, you're shaming your own house, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. This, this house you're building, this palace you're building, you Babylonians, like this work that you're doing, it has woven throughout it the blood of, of people, injustice woven throughout it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. It's amazing that Christians in the Old South would use the Bible to defend slavery. It's amazing to me. While using slave labor to build their city and establish their towns, build infrastructure, build their own wealth. If we read the text, it's not about us getting ahead it's about us submitting to God, walking by faith, and being righteous and just, not only in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with our neighbor. And so God is judging these people, and he says, Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, 
that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. And then you get this refrain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This message of the Babylonians, their glory that, that, I mean, it travels, right? When a nation has glory, people hear about it. They're, They're caught up in fear because of it. It spreads. And God is saying, that might spread, but it won't stand. See, I am above that. And my glory is going to cover the face of the earth. Not the glory of the Babylonians, not those who kind of revel in their own strength or those who build their house kind of in an unjust way. That's not the message that the world is going to ultimately grab hold of and continue on with or live with. It's the message of me. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not the Babylonian message. The circumstances, the trials, the difficulties will not get the last word. They will not go down in the annals of history. It's the message of me, the glory of the Lord. That's the message that's going to go forth and cover the earth. And then it continues on. And and God is now prophesying judgment against the Babylonians. When we get to verse 18, of what value is an idol since a man has carved it or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to the lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? Is it covered with gold and silver? There is no breath in it. You're trusting in and nothing, you, you've got these pagan gods and you're, you're, you're worshiping them as they're allowing you to do whatever you want, perpetrate injustice and violence into the world, kill little, little babies, women, children, all of it. Like you're doing this and you're getting permission from idols that you yourself have created. This whole story that's going on here is broken. It cannot stand. I will not allow it even though I'm going to use the unrighteous, even though I'm going to use the violent to bring judgment on my people who also have fallen into violence or injustice, I'm not going to stand for this as well. This this too shall surely fall. So verse 20, the last of God's words in Habakkuk are this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The one book of the Bible that's a conversation, purely a conversation between man and God, the last words of God in that conversation are this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I am above all. I am over all. It's mine. The story is mine. What's going to be ultimately written is mine to write. Your, your circumstances that you're afraid of, those circumstances that dominate you, I get it. But in the end, I decide what's going to be ultimately written about you and about your circumstances, about your life, about how you lived your life, about my work in your life, about your relationship with me. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's something really interesting here. 
Not only are those God's last words, but the next thing that comes back from Habakkuk. So we've got part one, Habakkuk's complaint. Part two, God's response. Part three, Habakkuk's complaint. Like, wow, you, you just are fighting fire with a nuclear bomb here. Like, I don't get it, God. Part four, God's response. Part five, is it another complaint? It's not. It's not another complaint. God has answered and Habakkuk this time doesn't come back with another complaint. In some sense, he is silent before God. And he comes back with a song. A song that was meant, just like the Psalms, to be played for the director of music on stringed instruments. You'll see that at the, at the end of the book. That this priest or this prophet probably had music training. And when God said, fall silent before me, his response was, okay. Now here's my song of worship or praise. There's something fascinating about the book of Job. Um, real quick, the book of Job, an incredibly long book, is the same thing. God allows these trials to befall Job. And Job then goes, I don't understand why these trials are here. I didn't do anything to deserve these. And so I, I need to go to God. Like, I got to get to him. I got to give my complaint. I got to tell him that this is somehow wrong. Maybe it missed God's notice. And if I can just tell God, God will go, oh, yeah, you're right. That shouldn't have happened. It's like, you know, if you get a bad thing for Christmas and you're like, I got to see Santa Claus because I know I was good. And, and somebody, some elf messed this up. Vince Vaughn messed this up. Um, and, and I got to, I got to like, I got to tell Santa because then he'll fix it. You know, like it's, it's that, it's that, that, I mean, that, that record that's playing. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. If I just tell God, if I tell him enough, if I shout it loud enough, like it, it certainly like if he, un, if he only heard, he'd know it's not supposed to be this way. This cancer's not supposed to be here. Not now. My family was perfect. My husband wasn't supposed to do that. My children, I, 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 I know that they're good. I, I have the pictures. I have the memories from vacation. That, they weren't supposed to go this way. Something, something's wrong here. If I can talk to God, if God will hear me, he'll understand, he'll fix it. So I'm praying about it, God, but, but you're not answering. Why aren't you answering? Why aren't you there? Because if you heard me, you'd understand I'm right. You'd fix it. So this is, this is Job. Job's going, I got to get to God. And his friends are like, oh, dude, like you actually messed up. That's on you. No, I got to get to God. Like God's got to hear this. And so Job presses and he presses and he presses. And finally, God answers and God says, Job, brace yourself. Conversation isn't going to be the one that you brought to me. You're not going to frame where I'm going to speak into. I'm going to talk to you the way I, I talk to people, which is basically I am the conversation. So brace yourself, Job. And then God thunders and says, where were you when this was getting built? Where were you when this was getting built and the fish of the sea and the oceans and the birds? Where were you when this happened? Do you hold all of it in the palm of your hand? Where were you, Job? Brace yourself. And God continues to talk and continues to talk and then eventually ends and never once addresses the complaint that Job brought forward. Never once addresses the problem of evil. 
or the problem of suffering or the problem of pain never once addresses what we're all dealing with. Whether you know it or not, you've got a complaint against God. If you're sitting here and you have a pulse this morning, you have a complaint against God. If you're honest with yourself, you have a complaint. I do. I, I got more than one. Seriously, right? And God never answers the complaint. He just goes on and on about how big he is. And then basically says to Job, kind of, or it's what, what's really implied, basically kind of does this, are you answered? And, and kind of what's implied again is, yeah, I'm answered. This is the back half of the book of Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, my favorite book. And C.S. Lewis takes and riffs off of Job for the whole back half of this book that is one of the most amazing pieces of thought, let alone literature, that I've ever read. And it, and it just explodes this story of, of Job and puts you into it. And you're like, wow, are you answered? Even though there hasn't been an answer. Yeah, I'm answered. I'm answered. And Job goes away, guess what? And leaves the complaint behind. So Eleanor Stump, one of my uh, favorite Christian philosophers, um, she's Catholic. I brought her here to speak and just didn't tell anyone that she was Catholic um, because somebody would have taken issue with that, Um, even though she's Christian and a sincere woman of faith. But I wanted her to speak. She talked on the Psalms. You can find the video. It was amazing. But she's one of the leading Christian minds in the world, Eleanor Stump. Um, Some of you young people, if my daughter's in here, I don't know if she is, you can be Eleanor Stump. You can be smarter than all the boys. Um, So Eleanor Stump has, she framed what's called the the second person argument uh, for the problem of evil. And, and I'm just going to rehearse this for you really quick because it was earth-shattering to me the first time I heard that lecture. I listened to it probably no less than 30 times. She said, she said it in an hour, but I just listened to it no less than 30 times. She basically says, the first person question of the problem of evil is the complaint. It's my experience. It's not fair. It's not fair. God, if you, if, if you would listen to me, I could explain it to you. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. My business partner wasn't supposed to cheat. Like our business, you know what I mean? Like it's not supposed to be this. That's the first person part of the problem of evil. The third person part is the disinterested part. It's it's the part that actually gives an answer kind of in real space and time. It's like, oh, you don't understand because um, next week you're going to win FanDuel. And you're going to get a million dollars for sitting at home on a Sunday and watching TV and, um, and that'll, that'll make sense of all of it. And, and then you'll understand, right? Like, so it's the answer. The third person thing is the answer that the first person thing is looking for. Does that make sense? God, my finances, I feel this. Third person would be like, oh, and by the way, um, if we could go to the future, you're rich. Uh, you do get married. Uh, it is happily ever after. Uh, the cancer does go into remission. It's the, it's the actual, tangible, objective thing that would resolve the first-person complaint. Make sense? 
This is where we live in this tension between first person and third person. Got a complaint, looking for an answer. Habakkuk, got a complaint, looking for an answer. Job, got a complaint, looking for an answer. God speaks with both of them, doesn't give the answer they're looking for, doesn't say, um, here's how I'm going to resolve all of it tomorrow for you, Habakkuk. Uh, or here's a time, date, place, all this. By the way, your nephew, your uncle, they're going to make it out alive. Like, he doesn't give the answer to Habakkuk, and he certainly doesn't give the answer to Job. Doesn't give the answer. Yet both of them walk away answered. That's, that's fascinating what's going on. And Eleanor Stump says it's the second person that comes in to this, this gap. It's it's God revealing himself as existing. It's God speaking. When someone speaks, you know they exist. When God speaks, the God of the universe speaks to you and declares things to you about, I have final say over how this is going to be written. I have final say over what will go in the annals of history. I have final say over your story, including your problems, that I am that big. When the God of the universe says, I am with you, the answer is, okay. I don't have the answers, but I now know and can experience that you are with me in the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord truly is my shepherd. He is over me as a sheep or a part of the flock, and in him I can trust that I can wait to be delivered, and that is sufficient for me. So now the righteous will walk by faith. The second person, in other words, the person, the personal presence of God is what resolves the experience, not the way we thought it would be resolved, but resolved nonetheless. This morning, if God is speaking to you, if God is going to speak to you, chances are it's not going to be in how he is going to resolve your circumstances or your stress but it's him revealing himself to you so that you go, you know what? God really is there. He does see. He does know. And if he sees and he knows and he's the God of the universe and speaking to me, then I can trust that he has it. And so I can walk out with my strength being placed in him. My ability to, to kind of continue on in life, not because I have hope that the circumstances are going to change, but that I have my hope in the Lord. And that that's sufficient for me. If God's going to speak to you this morning, chances are himself is what he's going to give you. His voice is what you're going to get. A sense of his presence or his bigness or his sovereignty is what you're going to be able to anchor into. So the final refrain here is this song. And it goes on. And it's beginning to now see Habakkuk, is in, he's in some sense acclimated himself to the fact that God is sending the Babylonians in, that what God said is true. He's kind of acclimated himself to this. And he continues on and he says, beginning in verse 13, you came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with the horses, churning the great, excuse me, the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. 
Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I'm trusting, God, that you have this one like you said you do. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So I'm going to wait patiently for you to resolve what it is you're doing, even though decay is in my bones and, and fear is just right there haunting me, whispering in my ear. Though the fig tree, listen to this metaphor, this series, this poetic series. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, what would that mean in today's vernacular? Though the foreclosure sign is on the door, though all my accounts are overdrawn, though all my friends have turned and run away from me, though I have nowhere to look for my basic security or my needs, though it looks like this is as bad as it can possibly get. Yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It's hard to preach these words. Preaching like when I was younger, it's a lot more fun. Um, because you wanted to do a good job. Like, I mean, you can ask my wife. The people pleaser part of me has, has been... I mean, maybe it's still there, part of it, but a lot of it's been burned out of me. Like, I don't care what you think. I can't really say that. Um, but it, strangely enough, makes me care more. Because now it's not like I'm so caught up with myself in this story. Like, was it a good sermon? As if that's kind of what really matters. Like when I preach now, it's like, no, man, there's, there's some messed up people in front of me. There's some people I really care deeply about. There's some people with some big questions. Like, and I, I feel that more than I think I did in my 20s and 30s, right? And so to preach is for me to say to you, knowing that you're dealing with real life, that the end of the story is, even though it might be as bad as it can be, that you're supposed to rejoice in the Lord. That we're supposed to be able to say, I will be joyful in God my Savior. And then the last verse here is this, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. So in closing, this is the whole thing. Prayer, our dialogue with God we think it's, it's, it's all about changing the circumstances. And what we find out in Habakkuk is that the prayer, the dialogue with God, really is about changing us in the face of our circumstances. That when we go to God and we interact about the story that's out there, what gets changed isn't always the third person kind of story, the details, but what gets changed is our own hearts. And we begin to go, okay, God, if it really is us in this, even as bad as it can get, at least I've got you. 
I'm going to anchor into that. You're my only source of joy or, or a kind of happiness or satisfaction in this world. I'm going to take that. I'm going to walk with that. And oh, by the way, last word here. God's last word was, the, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk's last word is, look, God, he can make my feet like the feet of a deer, like those mountain goats or whatever, that can navigate the gnarliest of circumstances. I worked for a couple summers in, in Big Bear, California, and you were, you were never walking on a paved surface. You were always walking kind of on rocks and everything else. And it's fascinating. Your ankles the first week are just wrecked, and they have to stabilize, and they have, you have to kind of get, get your ankles about you. And then you can kind of go a lot quicker, a lot faster, and have more strength. And the whole idea here is Habakkuk saying, circumstances are rocky, they're not going to change. God's going to be my source here of strength. I'm going to develop my joy in him. I can continue. I've got joy. I'm not going to say that all of life sucks. Like I'm willing to walk forward and anoint my head with the oil of gladness. And God will give me the ability to navigate these most trying of circumstances. My feet will be like Heinz feet. There's a phenomenal book called Heinz Feet on High Places. It's an allegory. Go read it. Hind's feet on high places. So in the end, if you came in this morning, if you stood up, if you're hungry to hear from God, we have our complaints. God answers oftentimes not the way we frame it, not the way we'd be able to even understand it or hear it. But eventually when we get to the end of that conversation, God is going to say, listen, I'm seated in my holy temple. Let the earth be silent before me in submission to me because I write the final story. And then as we respond to that, we begin to realize that what's going on in this conversation is that our hearts are changing and that ultimately we go, God, I trust you. Please help me acclimate to my circumstances. And to be able to do this in faith as I, as I continue to try to walk forward righteously or justly, that this is the song of Christianity, that this is the refrain, this is the story that gets picked up all the way through the New Testament that we jump into, that, it, that is what we walk out with as the people of God, the people of faith on Sunday mornings. This is what we come to hear week after week, to steep in, to be changed by, to know that this is our song. Amen? If you want to, stand with me again in prayer. We're going to take the offering in just a minute. We've got song coming out. But let me pray kind of a benediction type prayer over us as we finish the message this morning. Father, in our mind's eye, sometimes it is hard to get all the way to the place where we see you high and lifted up. Where we see your glory as a beautiful sunset that radiates, no matter what our mood, it radiates. Even if we've just gotten uh, done crying and we have tears still on our cheeks, the sunset still radiates. It's still beautiful. Your glory is beautiful. It's majestic who you are. That you really do have this whole story in your hand. It radiates even if the tears are still on our cheeks. It's hard for us to grasp that in our mind's eye. God, Father, please help us. Help us to submit to you, to know that you are with us. Please allow us to sense your presence. Speak to us just so that we could know you are there, so that we could cling to that, if nothing else. 
And Father, I know that if that happens, it's not even application from this sermon or anything else that I would say. It's the power of your presence that will allow us as, as a people, your people, to walk out with joy and to know that we can somehow navigate what comes next. Your presence is really all we need. And so I say that it's all we seek. God, give us yourself. In Jesus' name.